Typically, we do kind of work system analysis things, follow people around, look at all the tasks they do, the tools they use, um, do interviews with the end users to try and understand why the technology is not um, being used the way the designers or the organisations think it should be used. Um, and there are lots and lots of reasons why that is the case. Design is a really big one. Um, so we have a lot of problems with design, I think, of our technologies. Um, but then there are factors external to that as well. So just, you know, healthcare is a very complex system, um, a lot going on, a lot for people to do. Um, so, and the systems that we implement should really support that, but in many cases they don't. Um, so, yeah, a whole range of different types of projects, different types of technologies, different end users, um, depending on what problems need to be solved, we go out there and try and help solve those problems. So what are some of the technologies? Um, so I'd, my work probably started most in medication management. So I was based in the pharmacy department of a hospital for a long time and worked with them on trying to improve medication safety with digital health. Um, and so we now in, a, in New South Wales don't use paper anymore for our medication charts. So everything's electronic. Um, so doctors prescribe electronically and nurses administer using the electronic system and pharmacists review electronically in a computerized way. So it's all, it's all nice, which should be all nice and a licked kind of um, medication management system. But yeah, there are some problems. Um, again, with design, again, with how these systems align with workflow. Um, and most of these large scale, System. So our electronic medical records, our electronic medication systems are US systems. Um, and so they're designed with US um, workflows and roles in mind. And what we do here is slightly different to that. And so they have to like add bits on and make changes to the system. Or sometimes the organization goes, we're going to create this workaround because the system doesn't let us do what it we'd like it to do. And so we will just add this bit on. Everyone should do this. Everyone should do that. And so then you just kind of make the systems work because, you know, they're the, they're the best we've got. Um, and so mainly my work has focused on electronic medical records and electronic medication management systems. But I'd say in the last three or four years, I've really tried to branch out to look at different types of technologies because we're seeing a lot more of different types of technologies now being used. So I think traditionally when people thought about digital health, they thought about EMRs, electronic medical records, but now we've got so many things being added on to our electronic medical records and a lot of different devices and things being used. Um, and so I've been try trying to look at these other types of technologies as well as the standard kind of EMRs. But that doesn't mean that our EMRs are a set and forget systems. They're continuously changing and there's a lot more work we need to do in our EMRs and with with respect to usability and a lot of other things as well. So um, so there's there's no shortage there of, of problems to tackle. So there are lots of users in this system. Um, what are some of the users or who are some of the users? Yeah, so we have our clinician users. Um, so obviously our 
doctors, nurses, pharmacists, allied health professionals. Um, and then we also have our support staff. Um, but when it comes to electronic medical records, I would say the clinician uses our, our primary end users. And each of them uses the system in a very different way um, and have obviously very different tasks that they need to do. Um, and so that kind of brings some challenges forward with respect to, you know, which parts of an electronic medical record someone can see and access, for example. Um, do you need to be able to um, make changes to this page if you're not this type of healthcare professional? So then there are some permission kind of things that organisations try to set up with, when it comes to giving different clinical groups access to the EMR. Um, and the other thing is even within a particular group, people do different tasks, right? So I, if you, even if you're a doctor, if you're a senior doctor, you're likely to do very different things in the EMR than if you're a junior doctor. Um, so although they have the same permissions, they're going to be using the EMR in very different ways. Um, they have different roles in the hospital and different tasks they need to do. And so in thinking about that, Thinking about the design of these systems, we've got so many different end users then very, with very different needs. Um, and so we, we, it's hard to have this one-size-fits-all system, right, that everyone can use and, it, you know, everyone it supports everyone's tasks. And so I guess it's about having systems that are um, customizable or adaptable, um, that you can like see, control what you can see and, you know, what, what tabs would be useful to you, what pages you would use, that kind of thing. Um, so in addition to kind of a basic version of things, we should, we should be having systems, we should be designing systems that support different types of tasks and different types of users. You've indicated that you don't do a lot of design work and your role is mainly evaluation. So who is doing the original design work and are these users involved <laughs> in that design? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, these are huge um, vendors, US vendors, and I assume that they have um, clinician groups who are involved in the design of these systems. Um, in, in me looking at the system, I think they probably should have had more yeah, they needed to have more end users involved in the design. I think um, definitely we're seeing an increase in um, the, uh, I guess people are starting to appreciate, you know, user-centred design. We should be designing these systems with the users and with the users' needs in mind. I think historically that hasn't been the case. Most of these systems were designed as billing systems. So they were designed to support billing in the US because that's quite a big part of their healthcare. Um, we don't have that here. And so making the transition from a kind of administration billing system to a clinical system, that's a big jump. And there are different types of needs, obviously, for a clinical system than a billing type system. And so sometimes people who use these EMRs joke about it and say, oh, my billing system rather than my EMR because it's kind of designed that way to support them charging, et cetera, but rather than to support clinical work as it's done. Um, so in Australia, we definitely have seen um, a need. And so, for example, organisations like eHealth New South Wales now have um, a design group as part of that with human factors experts embedded in that because they appreciate 
um, just over the years, how many end users are complaining about the systems and all the and all the needs they've identified along the way. They appreciate the value of having some human factors integration. So we are seeing slowly the uptake of of these kinds of skills, but I, there's a long way to go. I think. Does some of the feedback from the changes or add-ons that you make to the system get back to the designers? That's a good question. I think some of it does, but definitely at a local level, they do what they can. So because it's the health service who come to me, not the technology partner that come to me and say, can you help us with the design? So it'd be the health service going, oh, we're really struggling with this technology or whatever it is. So then I'll go and do the evaluation with the team and then feedback and go, okay, these are the changes that are needed. And then at a local level, they do what they can and then they communicate with the technology partner and say, these are the changes we need in our system, you know, that we've identified, our usability issues or safety issues in our system. Um, so that's a very interesting area for me is the safety of digital health as well. So although usability is important, what we have found is that because the design of these systems is not very good, that we are seeing new types of errors and new types of risks that the implementation of these systems is introducing. And so those kinds of things I think are very important to address because, we, you know, healthcare itself is already risky enough. We don't want to be creating these extra risks with poorly designed technologies. Um, and so it's the health service who then goes to the vendor and says, look, this is a safety risk for us, change the design of this. You know, and some of them I'd have, have to say are pretty simple things that should have been identified pretty early on. I can give an example for, so for example, on a chart, you know, for a medicine, to, for the user to see that if a medicine is currently active, they have to scroll horizontally, which is extra work for the person to do. Um, it would be much better if they can see from the front page, from the first page, whether a medicine is, is currently active on the patient's chart or has been ceased. Um, and so if the user doesn't scroll, they miss that information. So they'll look at it and go, okay, they've already on a warfarin. I don't have to prescribe warfarin, but actually, you know, that ceased, but you didn't scroll. So you can't see that it ceased. And so then the patient misses out on warfarin. So those kinds of things, you know, we, it's just a simple design. Let's have move up front, whether the medicine is ceased or active, rather than having it something that the user has to do an extra step to see. Um, so those kinds of small design things, I think it's a shame, you know, with user testing and with, with proper user-centered design, I'm sure all of these issues would have been identified early on, but now we're seeing all these small types of things emerge and then these extra you know, we're seeing these incidents occur because of poor design. So these systems aren't designed and then rolled out with a small user group adopted by various organisations, um, health organisations, and then they find the emergent risks as they go. Is that what's happening? Yes, that's right. So our, I mean, in our hospitals, so we have, as you know, a very health, a very disjointed healthcare system in Australia. And so our digital health is also very disjointed. We don't have a single system that everyone's using, for example, as their medical record. So different states have used different approaches. Um, in New South Wales, our hospitals use different systems. I mean, they use, most of them use the same 
type of system but different configurations of the system. Um, in other states, they've gone with everyone's going to use the same system in all their hospitals. In other states, they're like, oh, every, it's free. Everyone can just pick whichever EMR they want, they want to they want to pick, right? And then that's that's just in hospitals. Then we've got you know a general practice. Every general pra- practice can buy their own EMR, their own system, and do do their own thing, right? So so it's very disjointed. And as a consequence of that, the data also doesn't follow people, right? So if you're a patient here in Sydney and you go to Royal Prince Alfred Hospital here and then you go to Liverpool Hospital. People in Liverpool Hospital can't see what happened to you at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. It's different EMR, different systems, right? So it's very, very disjointed. Um, And so New South Wales Health has gone, okay, this is a huge problem. We're going to implement a single EMR that all our hospitals can use. And that means it doesn't matter where patients go, all their health records will follow them. And the plan is they've now selected a system and the plan is they're going to roll out, replace our current EMR with a single digital patient record, they're calling it, and the next seven years all hospitals in New South Wales will have the same EMR. That's the plan. But, again, if a patient then moves to a general practice, that general practitioner can't see what's happened to the patient in hospital because they're using a different system. Um, and so it is a very disjointed, unfortunately. And so if we make changes, design changes to one, currently make design changes to one hospitals or one district system, they don't flow on to other hospitals and other districts until we have a single digital patient record or a single EMR that will be used across. Then if a design change is made, hopefully that design change will flow through to all hospitals and districts using that system. Wow, I wasn't aware that hospital to hospital they couldn't see the data. That's It's crazy. Yeah, I think it's crazy. crazy. And most consumers don't know that because they expect, you know, most consumers expect the data to follow them. I would. I would expect my data. Or didn't you know what happened to me? You know, so it is absolutely crazy. And it's the same with nursing homes, right? So if you're discharged from hospital, you go into a, a residential aged care facility, obviously that residential aged care facility can't see what's happened to you in hospital. So it's relying on a lot of the discharge information to be to be um, transferred across. So, And it's at these transitions of care where most errors occur um, because information is lost. Um, and so really we should be designing systems that work across all settings and uh, follow the patient, you know, a a patient-centric type systems. Um, I guess I don't know how how familiar you are with the My Health Record, Sharon, but the My Health Record was meant to be a solution to this um, fragmented healthcare system. So this is a federal initiative, so it's come down from the Commonwealth Government that everyone has this My Health Record, and that's supposed to be... Um, you know, the source of truth for patients as they move across our healthcare system. Um, and I'm interested to hear what people think of the My Health Record from a design perspective. If they go and download the My Health Record app and try to play around with it, because there are a lot of usability issues with that system as well. Um, and that was that was meant to be a part solution, I guess, to our fragmented healthcare system. Okay, so you've flagged a lot of problems with adoption and you've mentioned patient safety and emergent risks. Um, we've mentioned only a couple of those. So what are some of the other problems that you've had with adoption? Yeah, so I guess if people don't see a need or a value for the system, then you're likely to get 
or uptake of the system. And so there are a few ways that I guess research or data could help with that. So when I was involved, I was involved in some of the very early rollouts of electronic medication systems in New South Wales. And People were very, very reluctant to take these technologies up. They were like, why do we need to take an electronic, use an electronic system? We've got our paper chart we've been using for 20 years or whatever it is. It's a great chart. It works fine, you know. Um, and it was, it, it was bringing them back to kind of, okay, how, so I'd ask questions like, how often do you think you as a healthcare professional make an error in your prescribing of a, med, of a medicine? And people would say to me, error, I don't make any errors. Like, I never make an error. Um, so very poor awareness of how well they're going. And that's not their fault. It's because they get very little feedback about how well they're going. So unless a patient's harmed or something like that and it comes back to them, okay, you prescribed 10 times the dose or whatever it is, um, they just don't know that that how many mistakes they're making on an everyday kind of basis. At the same time, we were doing some audits at the hospital, some charts audit chart audits to try and work out how many errors patients were experiencing, and we were finding things like five to six on average, five to six errors per patient. So five to six prescription errors per patient. Someone's got to be making these errors. Who's making these errors? If the people are masking and saying, oh, I'm not making, I'm not making the errors, very poor awareness. And because of that, then they're like, why do we need a safety intervention like an electronic system when there are no safety issues? Like there are very few safety issues. Um, so I think data and research can help with adoption because if you're able to present, so I gave, gave presentations at the grand rounds and said, actually, you know, on average, people are experiencing five errors, so we really do need some kind of safety intervention here. Um, and so that helped with people starting to go, oh, maybe we should be thinking about an electronic system, you know, as a – so that that was that's my first piece of advice is that you need to create, I guess, um, improve the visibility of a need for an intervention. Um so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is just the whole like design and workflow fit and stuff. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a lot of work entering data into electronic systems. It takes longer than paper-based processes. If people think putting a system in is going to make them more efficient, I think that's the wrong message we should be giving to our healthcare workers this system's going to reduce your time, documentation time, and make you more efficient. I think that's the wrong message. I think we should be pushing the safety benefits because we know that moving from a paper system to an electronic system is much safer. We're seeing huge improvements. Over 50% of errors are reduced when you implement an electronic system. I think they're the types of messages we should be pushing because things do take longer and we have an ageing workforce you know, typing something in to a system, a lot of fields, you know, it takes, it's a lot of work. Um, why would people do that if they don't see a safety benefit? The other thing is our systems are so poorly designed that there's a lot of information that goes in that is never, ever used again, right? So people are putting stuff in, are required, all these mandatory fields they must complete, and then 
that information just sits there. It doesn't really get used by any other teams, doesn't really inform care. And so another big problem with our systems is that we need to take out the data entry fields that go nowhere and make the data entry meaningful for the end users so that then they don't mind doing it because they can see, okay, this is this information will be used here and here, so it's okay. So I'll give you an, a, a classic example of this. So for antibiotics, when you prescribe an antibiotic, you're supposed to put in the system the reason why you're prescribing the antibiotic because we have so much overuse of antibiotics, right, um, that we want to know why people are using a particular antibiotic. So we ran a study where we looked at all the reasons an antibiotic was being used. So we pulled for over a 1,000 antibiotics the reasons people were writing for that antibiotic. And we found that over a third of them were gibberish. So people were writing things like, my senior doctor told me in the reason for why they were prescribing the antibiotic, or they would just put like a string of text with the keyboard you know, from the keyboard, or they would just write something like ICU, you know, intensive care unit, which isn't a reason for giving an antibiotic. Um, and so when we interviewed the doctors about like, what's going on? Like, why are you not putting in the actual reason for your antibiotic in there? They would be like, who's checking that anyway? Like that information goes nowhere. It just, it's just a mandatory field we have to get past in order to prescribe the antibiotic. So, they saw no value in taking the time to go, okay, this is the reason for my antibiotic. Um, and as a result, they, there was just, it was like workaround. Basically, people were just work, working around the system to get the antibiotic to the patient. The problem with that is that those reasons for antibiotic don't stop there, right? So they follow the patient, they go on to the discharge summary. So if the patient gets all their medicines, you know, they'd have all the medicines and then it'll have the reason why you were prescribed that medicine. So then they'd have reason and it could be like the senior doctor told me right next to the, the thing. So that was the, and then some, and then the hospital also used that to print their labels for their boxes when they gave the patients their medicines to go home, they would print the reason from the EMR to go on the box. So then the reason on the box would be complete gibberish as well. But these reasons, like these, these flow-on effects were not visible to the users of the system, right? So they, were, they had no idea. They thought that no one ever checked it. They, they said things like no one ever pulled me up on putting something in the box which didn't make sense. Um, and so that, that just tells us, you know, that it's, a, it's that kind of feedback thing. So an you put an electronic system in, there's so much junk that people have to put in there and people don't know where it's where it's going or if it's ever being used. And if there's no visibility of the consequences of inaccurate data entry into these systems and people are just going to keep using them in the way that's the most efficient for them to get the job done. So this is all usability, isn't it? We've, we've just discovered that they don't know what it's used for and there is no feedback. So how have you been able to improve any of that or have you? Yeah, so I sometimes do usability testing, a standard kind of usability testing approach. Um, but I have to say most of the work I do is in just in practices, in talking to people and um, looking at how 
like not usability in a sense of user testing where they're actually sitting there in a simulation using the system, but just you could look at how the system is actually used in practice. And that's very useful for us, especially for identifying these workarounds um, because workarounds usually you have to observe in real in the real context how people are using the system and how or how they're not using the system when they should be using the system. So I have used usability testing for some smaller kind of design projects, um, which I've done. Um, and in that case, we create a mock-up of some element of the digital solution and then get users, create patient scenarios, usually involving prescribing or whatever it is, whoever the end users are, and then get the users to work, walk through it and, you know, measure the standard things you would in usability testing. So satisfaction, efficiency, um, as well as effectiveness. So errors as they're progressing through the scenarios. Um, so that I find those kinds of things really useful for the more um, earlier design Kind of stuff, and also if we're doing, if we've decided we're going to redesign something, then we can create a mock-up of that and run um, users through some usability testing of that. But uh, to complement those kinds of methods, I think the real-life observational work is really, really important because it doesn't matter how much usability testing you do in a lab, when you put the system out there, it's going to be used in a very different way. Um, you know, lots of interruptions, things are so fast-paced. I mean, every time I go out to observe in healthcare, I'm very, very shocked at how fast-paced things move. Um, I've tried to even do time and motion studies, you know, where you time users, how long each task takes, and I, it's so hard to keep up because there's so much task switching and like healthcare providers are interrupted every few minutes, you know, and then have to switch to a new task. So it's really hard Um you don't really, you can't see that in usability testing. You can only see that when you're out, go out there in practice and look at how work is actually done. Yes. So how is work done? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no standard. People, yeah, people value efficiency and will do everything they can to be efficient. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the efficiency thoroughness trade-off, which is this, you know, how thorough do you have to be, how low can you get in thoroughness to be efficient, but you don't want to be creating like, you know, safety issues. Um, and so I think it's this, it's this constant thing, you know, I want to be as fast as I can to get my job done. And it's because people are so overworked, they've just got too much to do. Um, and so they try and find the most efficient way to do things. And this is a problem because it, it leads to workarounds and people using the tech, working or working around the technology because the technology is perceived to slow them down. Um, and the, I guess a very classic example of that is in nursing. So there's been quite a lot of work looking at nursing workarounds and how nurses, who really are one of our main users of technologies in hospitals, um, have have figured out ways to work around the technology because the technology is really slowing them down. And so a classic example of that would be something like, um, so, you know, our most of our um, computers are on wheels in hospital, right? So you're supposed to wheel them around um, and they're supposed to follow you as you're doing your work. And for a nurse who's 
doing an administration round where they have to administer the medicines to patients. They're supposed to be pushing the trolley along to each patient bedside. Before we had computers, if you think about it, most patients had like their chart at the end of the bed, right? So the nurse would take the chart, open the chart, go, okay, you know, Mr. Lee, we're giving you your whatever today. Check the ID band, check the allergies, make sure, check the chart, make sure all the medicine, the medicines they've got in their hand are the ones on the chart and then administer the medicine and then sign it off on the chart. So when the designers of technology thought, okay, we're now going to just pick this whole thing up and put it onto the computer, we'll see the same thing happening, right? The nurse will push the computer to the bedside, we'll open the patient's chart, we'll check all the details and things, um, and then administer the medicine and then sign it off on the chart. But in reality, that's not really how it works. So what happens is the nurse finds the workstation wherever it's available, whether that's a computer on wheels or a stationary thing, you know, checks all the medicines, makes sure they're all, they're all okay, and then carries the medicines to the patient bedside without the computer because then they have to push the computer in. The computer's very slow, very clunky, depending on the size of the room. Is it an infectious control room where they, you know, getting a computer in and out? It's very challenging as well. Um, and so what they'll do is they'll go, okay, I'm about to go into room, you know, be, be over there with the four patients. I'll just do, there you go, four, and just tick all the medicines off that they've given them and then walk to the room and give them to the patients. So obviously that's a bit of a problem. Number one, because there's no check at the point of administration. Is this the right medicine for this patient? The chart isn't actually at the bedside. The chart's out in the hallway. Um, so there are a few risks associated with that. And then the other thing is, say the, the nurse goes in and then the patient on the fourth bed is not there. They're in the shower or they're upstairs getting an X-ray. They've just marked off the medicine as given, but the patient's not there, so the medicine actually hasn't been given. And having to, you can't you can't undo things like that in an EMR. Um, so it's been marked as given, and the patient didn't take the medicine at that time. So we see a lot of discrepancies between the time a medicine is given as documented in the EMR and the actual time a medicine is given. There's actually a big discrepancy between that most of the time because the signing doesn't occur simultaneously with the giving of the medicine. So that's a really classic example, which is used a lot of a, a workaround. Um, and the reason why the nurse is working around is because that's the most efficient way for he, her or him to do it, for her to do it all in one go and walk into the room and give all the medicines in one go. That's the most efficient way for them to do it. So how have you optimised that or can you optimise that? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I guess it's making people aware of the risk of doing that, but then just making some changes to, so like one of the biggest complaints is the slow loading time on the EMR, right, because it takes a long time to move between patients. The EMR is really slow, so that's why they just do it all in one go and then go and do it. So if we had faster systems, that might encourage people to take the computer to the bedside. The other interesting thing is that just the placement of computers. So we did some work looking at like how many computers people have on wards, where they put them, 
Um, and this can really dictate where work is done. So if you have, for example, a computer at the bedside all the time attached to the patient, like this is this patient's computer, what you find is much more work gets done at the patient bedside because the computer's there than if you didn't have that. Um, so more work gets done in the hallway then because that's where the computers are in the hallway. So placement of computers is also really important because it really dictates where people will do work and also make decisions. And, you know, having something next to the patient I think is really great because you might get more patient involvement and engagement in some of the decisions if the clinical staff always congregate there to make their decisions and the patient's right there, right? So that's really useful. And so I think people, designers of hospitals have to be mindful of that where you put your computers because as we're shifting to more and more, you know, computerized work, the work's going to be where the computers are, really. So these are huge challenges. I was going to ask you what your greatest challenge was, but I don't think there's one that's greater than another. <laughs> Maybe I should ask, what are some of the other challenges? Because these are huge. Yeah, they're all they're all really really big challenges. Um, everyone wants to do really good work, um, so it's so. I, what what kind of irritates me is is thinking that it's a human issue when it's. I don't, I, I I've never really come across in any project where it's a human issue. It's it's always a system issue, um, and so people want to do work. They want to do. They want. They they. Everyone's a healthcare provider because they want to help patients. Um, and so we should be helping them help patients by designing good systems and designing good work systems, not just EMRs, but like work systems as a whole. Um, and so I think I think we have some way in healthcare to shift people's thinking in that direction um, because people often think that, I mean, I think of things that it always, oh, let's retrain it's a tra- it's a training issue. We need to retrain people, but that's not. I don't. Know, I think that's a really, really bad attitude. I think we should be designing better systems so that we don't need to retrain because people will just do the right thing naturally, right? Because the system's encouraging the right the right um you know right whatever it is. Um, and we're seeing some of that with nudge. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, Sharon. This nudge nudge principles where you can nudge people to do the right thing. So Instead of um, designing systems that kind of give everyone all alternatives, let's design systems that make it really easy to do the right thing and really hard to do the wrong thing. So I can provide an example of that. So, for example, um, let's take um, generic medicines, right? So we want people to prescribe generically. We don't want people to prescribe brand medicines. We want people to prescribe generically. This would this would save a lot of money. Um, there's no need for us to to use particular brands. Let's just use generic. Um, and so there was a study which was really interesting. What they did was when someone went in to order a medicine in the system, it doesn't matter what they typed, it would always revert to to the generic. Right. So even if they typed in the brand name, it would come up underneath this is it, this is the order, and the order would be generic. And if the the prescriber really, really wanted to prescribe with the brand name, they could click a box and said prescribe by brand, but it was one extra click 
Uh, so it was more work to prescribe by brand. And so what they found is that before they in- introduced this small change to the design, it was something like 40% of medicines were prescribed generically. After they used just change the defaults, they would always prescribe generically unless they clicked one button, they ended up with 95% of drugs prescribed generically. So it's just a very small change to design, but it's nudging people to do the right thing and making it a little bit harder, not hard at all, but a little bit harder to do the brand name thing. And so that resulted in a huge change in behaviour. So we can be smart in the way that we design our systems to nudge people to do the right things. And a lot of my research is focused on decision support, so how we can support people to make the right decisions using technology. And unfortunately, most people immediately revert to we should alert the end user to something. Um, And so we have a huge problem in healthcare with alert fatigue. So let's just add another alert for this and add another alert for that. Oh, we've noticed that, you know, this medicine is often prescribed at too high a dose. Okay, let's chuck a an alert in then to warn the end user that they should, you know, not prescribe at this high dose. Um, And so people just immediately turn to alerts as the most, they think as the most effective way um, to change decision-making. And that's a a huge problem because it's not, we know that's not going to be the most effective way And especially because we have so many alerts in the system already. And so just adding another one in there is just going to add to the alert fatigue. It's getting lost in this sea of of alerts. Um, So if we try and adopt nudge principles, I think that's that's what we need to do. If someone said to me, what would be your solution to our poor design of EMRs? I would say we need to be smarter in the way we nudge people to do the right things. Um, So instead of warning them after the fact that they could have, you know, this is potentially dangerous for a patient, let's just direct them to choose the right thing in the first place, then an alert won't be needed, you know, post-selection or for whatever it is. Um, And there are lots and lots of ways to do that. I think one of the easiest way which we don't really utilise much is just with drop-down lists, you know, in systems. Um, so most people just choose the top item on a drop-down, especially if you've got a really long drop-down with, like, every single medicine dose possible with every single, you know, people just go for the top one and then they afterwards they just figure out. So if it's, if it's the wrong, some element of the order is wrong, they'll just fudge it and, you know, figure out a way to make it work. Um, so what if we had really smart systems and so... You were prescribing, say, a dose of something for a patient and the system was so smart that it knew for this patient at this age, considering their renal function and all this kind of stuff, I'm looking at all the complete patient profile. I know that the system knows the most appropriate dose for this patient is 500 milligrams. Wouldn't it be great if the system put 500 at the top of that drop-down and made it clear to the end user that this was the most appropriate choice for this patient. 
considering all the patient factors and stuff. That would be the coolest thing ever because everyone would just pick the 500, right, and then we'd end up with people getting the right doses. Our systems can't do that. We're, we're way, way behind. But that would be really cool. I think that would be a really cool type of decision support. Um, and all the other options which are inappropriate for that patient are not visible to end users. So we wouldn't get people making the wrong choices because it's just not possible to, to make that choice. Um, we don't do that. What we do is we give an alert after the person's chosen the dose and say, this is the wrong dose. Um, it just adds to the alert burden. I'm wondering whether the reason for choosing a particular medication, which we talked about earlier, was to circumvent some of the problems that arise with the amount of drug dosage that's given. For instance, certain circumstances might dictate a higher amount of the drug. Yep. Are those two fields correlated? No, so we don't have systems that are smart enough to know all these things. But what you're suggesting is correct. Like it should be, you know, for this use, this, do this dose is appropriate for this. If you're using it for this, this dose is appropriate. Um, so we're seeing, you know, everyone talks about AI and AI in healthcare is just, you know, skyrocketing. I think we need to get some of that AI into these EMRs, you know. So can't they tell us, you know, and, and I mean there are lots and lots of obviously a lot of other challenges we'd have to deal with. But our systems are really, I, I always call them really dumb. Our decision support systems are really dumb. They don't take into account anything. Um, and our, uh, they just, they've just got very basic algorithms in there. Um, the most common one, which I can, I could talk about for, for five hours because a lot, I do a lot of my research on drug, drug interaction. So this is like when a drug interacts with another drug. Uh, that's our most common type of, alert that we have in our EMRs and that's in GP systems and in hospital systems that if a user comes in to prescribe a drug and it could potentially interact with another drug on the patient's chart then an alert fires that says this drug could potentially interact with this drug right but our systems are so dumb that it's just drug drug that's all they take into account so it doesn't matter if you've given a very small dose of one and a very small dose of the other, too small a dose for them to interact. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've ordered one as a like topical ointment and the other one as a pill and so they can't actually interact. It doesn't matter. It's just drug, drug. If these two drugs are prescribed, the alert will fire. And so that's how, that's why we have so many alerts, because if they took into account all these other factors, so, you know, the roots, the doses, the patient factors, or oh, this is a very young patient, they can tolerate these two drugs together. Let's not fire the alert in this case. Then we would get very low numbers of alerts because our alerts would be smarter and more clinically relevant for the particular situation at that time. Um, but our alerts currently don't do that. Um, and so that is why we have hundreds of alerts and why we have alert fatigue and why we're also seeing, unfortunately, patient harms resulting from people ignoring alerts. So, you know, an alert popped up. It wasn't noticed because there were so many other alerts. And so then a patient gets a double dose or whatever it is and the patient's harmed from that. And so people go, oh, that's really careless on the end user's part because they should have seen the alert. And I'm like, no, no, that's really careless on the designer's part because they that prescriber received 16 alerts. What are they going to do? Re read those 16 alerts at the point in time 
where they're really busy and, you know, that alert looks like all the other alerts which don't mean anything, for, you know, and are not relevant to the patient. So it's it, – it, I we're, we're getting there, but I think people still see it as a kind of end user thing as opposed to a design thing, a design challenge which we uh, which we are facing. Yes, you've mentioned so many things there and we could talk for hours uh, about this. Is there any other way to improve alert fatigue? Yeah, so we're tackling it from different types, trying multiple strategies. Um, so eHealth New South Wales here, which is our state government, has recently developed a guideline um, on cl- clinical decision support, and it's kind of a, um, I guess, a flow diagram. And it, you you go through each of the kind of questions, and then you it tells you at the end where you do you need decision support number one, and then yes, if you do need decision support, what types of decision support should you consider? before you land on an alert, right? Because the alert the alert should be your last resort type thing. Um, and actually we're trialling the guideline um, at our conference in a few weeks where we're getting end users um, uh, to, to come in and come with their cases of decision support where, where they want to know whether they need an alert or not and try the guideline to help kind of inform their decisions about decision support to include in their EMRs. Um, so if people are around, I think we still have a few slots available. This is a, a breakfast workshop um, on the 5th of July at, at Sydney University. They can reach out to me or to HFESA if they have questions about it because HFESA is also a sponsor of our large conference, which is happening um, in a couple of weeks in Sydney. Um, but, yeah, so that's one way is that we're trying to give people guidance on how they can make decisions about their decision support. The other way is to provide evidence. Um, and this one's obviously interesting for me as a researcher, um, is to provide evidence on whether decision support is effective or not to help inform those decisions about decision support. So the drug-drug interaction one's a good example because this is what a project which is very close to my heart and I've been working on working on for nearly, I think, over five years now. But in this project, what we're doing is we're trying to, we're running a control trial to determine whether putting these alerts in actually makes a difference to patients. So I mentioned that they're the most common type of alerts that people receive. Um, and so as a clinician, you would encounter many drug-drug interaction alerts every day as part of your prescribing. And so for this study, what we're doing, so we've we had a series of hospitals and some of them act as control hospitals and some of them act as intervention hospitals. So our control hospitals um, did not turn on the drug-drug interaction alerts and our intervention hospitals turned on the drug-drug interaction alerts and we're comparing the impact of these two, this decision on patients. So whether patients experience fewer drug-drug interactions in the sites that have um, the alerts and whether patients are also um, harmed because I guess the whole point of this is that we're trying to prevent patients from being harmed from medicines so do we see fewer patient harms associated with those drug-drug interactions um, in the intervention sites? So we're rounding up the trial. Um, the trial 
will be finished in the next few months and we'll have an answer to our question, which is do drug-drug interaction alerts prevent drug-drug interactions? Um, and I don't, bit of a spoiler alert, I won't, but I, 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 it's leaning towards no, the answer to that question will be no. So implementation of drug-drug interaction alerts does not, do not prevent drug-drug interactions. Um, and so armed with that evidence then, say we've got the whole trial completed, all the stats done, everything, here's our final result, what will people do? Will people say, okay, we're not going to, we're going to turn off our drug-drug interaction alerts in our electronic medical records or will people just continue, status quo, just continue on and maintain their drug-drug interaction alerts in their systems? Um, that's a really difficult question um, and it's a, it's a dilemma I think people will, will have to face. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a safety, it's viewed as a safety intervention. So it's kind of like going, okay, I'm going to turn off um, the mirrors on my car on the side um, because I've, I just found out that they actually make no difference um, to the blind spot accidents, right? So if you knew that there was a safety intervention, which everyone thought was a safety intervention, um, and the evidence shows that it actually doesn't improve safety, um, what would you do? Would you turn that safety feature off or would you just maintain it in case it comes in handy some of the time, even though it probably won't come in handy? Um, so it's a really difficult question um, and I don't, I don't want to force people to, um, I'm not the, I'm not the implementer. I don't make, I'm just providing the evidence and then people can take that evidence and make a decision um, based on that. What I will say is that I think about those little lights that come on on my mirror on my car. And I actually don't think that there's any negative consequences of having that going, even if it doesn't um, make a difference, as long as it doesn't, lead to people relying on it and it's not actually working, right? So automation bias or whatever it is. But the alerts is something different because the alerts take a lot of time. Uh, they cost a lot of money. Uh, a lot of clinicians are spending time clicking through reading the alerts or, you know, it's, 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 it's a high-cost intervention. It leads people to become very frustrated at the EMR um, so when, when I ask people, you know, what do you think of your system? People immediately say, oh, the alerts, the number of alerts I get, you know, there's so many alerts. Um, and so it's leading to negative um, views of the EMR in general, even though it's the alerts themselves, which are causing problems. Um, and the other thing is the safety risk. So by having so many alerts, people are missing some of the important alerts in there. So if they're not actually effective, shouldn't we take them out so that they can notice the effective ones that are left? Um, so there is a negative consequence actually of keeping the alerts in there, even though, you know, it, it's a, it's a safe a proposed safety feature. So yeah, it's, it's, they're really difficult decisions, but that's been my two-pronged approach to how we can get rid of alert fatigue, Sharon, which you asked me, which is one of the evidence. So can we provide evidence to help people make decisions about which alerts to put in and not to put in? And the second is can we give people guidance 
um, make them aware of the negative consequences of having too many alerts in a system, um, give them guidance on whether these this decision support is the right decision support for that problem that they're trying to target um, with an alert. Wow, you've given me so much to think about. I, I guess I was thinking that AI may be extremely useful in this and then the question is uh, how serious is an alert? And That's right. And I, I also have this question about how much can people tolerate? As a user, how many alerts do you can you see before you start to just ignore the alerts? Like we don't have that threshold of like what's an okay number. Um, I did try to run run a study on that. Like I, I wanted to know that because I thought maybe I could say to, to hospitals or whoever, you can only have this many alerts and then once you hit that point, forget it. So make a decision about what alerts you want to put in that, that before you hit that level. Um, and so what I did was I recruited um, medical students and I created these scenarios and I used a, um, the training version of one of the hospital EMRs and I created these scenarios where they got like varying levels of alerts and then I like looked at how um, like, you know, using screen capture, looked at like how long they were spending on each alert screen and, you know, when they started to stop, because like, I was interested in when they stopped reading, right, when they just started to click past without reading um, but I couldn't answer the question because I found there was too much variability. Like people have very different tolerances for how many alerts they can handle, I think, before they start to ignore the alerts. And I think that the thing is, it's, so it's, it's individuals, but it also it's context. So depending on what else you're doing, it might, it might vary. So how many, how many alerts you can handle might vary depending on what it is you're doing and also your previous experience of alerts. I mean, most of us would be familiar with alerts through like Word or whatever, you know, it comes up. I, sometimes I click without even reading what the warning says. Um, and so all of us have some experience of alerts, but in EMRs, you know, I, I do wonder about like people who have never, ever seen an alert in an EMR before have probably a very different view of alerts than someone who's been working in an EMR for 10 years and seen, you know, hundreds and thousands of alerts that don't mean anything to them. Um, so there's a lot of individual variability, I think. Mel, your work is fabulous and I'm looking forward to chatting with you again about some of the other projects that you've been working on or are working on at the moment and particularly to talk more about uh, this alert fatigue. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been my pleasure, Sharon. Thank you very much for having me. If you're interested in the conference that Professor Baisari has mentioned, the Context Sensitive Health Informatics Conference is to be held in Sydney over two days on the 5th and 6th of July at the University of Sydney. This is the pre-conference to MedInfo 2023, which is the World Congress on Medical and Health Informatics. If you're interested in attendance, search CSHI 2023 Sydney. Thanks for joining us at the Human Factors and Ergonomics Hub, brought to you by the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society of Australia, where human-centred design really matters. If you like this podcast, make us your favourite in your podcast app. We look forward to chatting with you next time. Listener.